The Bob Murphy Show, episode 107. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show for another scintillating episode. On this one, I am going to rebroadcast a recent interview I gave to Max Sklar, who hosts the Local Maximum podcast. And the reason, it's not that I'm phoning it in, it's that we got into something that was very specific. And actually, at the time, I was wondering if we were going to get a whole episode out of it. And then just, I'm, I'm able to talk if I need to. And it turned out to be pretty interesting stuff that has never come up before on the Bob Murphy show. And I don't anticipate it would anytime soon. So I thought, okay, why don't I go ahead and run this discussion as part of the Bob Murphy show as well. So just to give some background on this pod, well, the, the topic we're talking about, just to end your suspense, is he wanted me to come on and talk about Ludwig von Mises' uh, distinction between class probability and case probability that he lays out in human action. And how does that relate with Bayesian inference, the way modern economists use that, or in other people too, not just economists. So that's, that's what we talk about. But again, it's, it's not just merely about Mises. I think it does have implications beyond that. We get into some good stuff about AI and whatnot. So just to, to understand where this guy is coming from, so the Local Maximum podcast, this is, I'm reading from their website here, the phrase Local Maximum is a mathematical term and it refers to a point at which you need to step down in order to reach new heights. But people, not just points, can get caught in a Local Maximum. That means they've gone as far as they can through one strategy, which has gone stale, and they need to search for new ideas. In product design and machine learning, we sometimes ask if we're in a local maximum and whether starting from a fresh perspective can lead to better results. All right, so that's where the, the title of the podcast comes from. And then just to give a little more background about Max himself, the Local Maximum is hosted and produced by Max Sklar. Max is a software engineer and new product developer by trade with a focus on machine learning, Bayesian inference, and content discovery and prototyping. Bulk of his work as a machine learning engineer was at Foursquare, where he built Foursquare City Guide's critically acclaimed 10-point venue rating system in the MarsBot app. Uh, more recently, he led the development of a causality model for Foursquare's ad attrib attribution product and now works at Foursquare's innovation lab. He holds, Max holds a master's degree from NYU in information systems, and a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Yale. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Max Sklar on the case versus class probability that Mises discusses in human action. Bob Murphy, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And thanks for coming on to talk about stuff that you wrote 10 years ago and going back into that. I really appreciate it. Sure thing. Uh, so we're going to talk about the interpretation of probability today. It's kind of, it's a crucial topic for my work in data science and machine learning, but a lot of the techniques that I talk about were just not possible decades ago. So I want to get a sense of how these ideas developed over time. And I know that this is, you know, 
just a piece of the, uh, just a part of, of a book you read on Mises' Human Action many years ago. But maybe before we start, you can kind of tell the audience about, uh, you know, more of the work that you're doing nowadays. Like you put out so much, so much articles and content on so many different topics that um, what do you see as your main uh, line of, uh, of inquiry uh, these days in 2020? Well, I appreciate that. Um, probably it's, it's fair to say that the, the single thread that goes through most of what I do professionally is that I try to explain economic issues to the layperson. So, you know, a lot of times people email me or come up to me at a conference or something and, and say, hey, you know, I really appreciate that you take really complicated stuff and you, you know, make it in a way I can understand, but it's clear you're not dumbing it down. So the specific things that I've covered for many years, I was really uh, hip deep in the, the economics of climate change. So like, you know, looking at the so-called social cost of carbon and how do people come up with those estimates and why you need to be careful and people saying, oh yeah, carbon tax is an obvious, you know, no-brainer solution to this problem. And, you know, just pointing out, well, no, actually there's, lot, there's lots of uh, steps along the way, any one of which could go wrong. Um, certainly I write a lot about the Federal Reserve and the banking system and how that contributes to the boom-bust cycle using the theory that was developed by Ludwig von Mises, who we're going to be talking about in a minute here. And then I guess more recently, I started my own podcast, The Bob Murphy Show, and that's uh, where I was able to interview people, but also talk about other things too. And, and so I'm a, a Christian and I like talking to people about um, the, the fact that I used to be an atheist. And so I liked explaining how, you know, I, I know, I remember when I was an atheist, I thought this stuff was completely irrational and illogical, but actually now that I'm a Christian, let me show you. Duh, 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 duh. And so with a, a lot of this stuff, it's, I, I guess, now to update what I'm saying, it's more I want people to just think more clearly about certain issues. And I'm not even trying to change people's minds so much, but usually just show, hey, look at if you're thinking about it a certain way, maybe there's this other framework or there's considerations you haven't considered before. So just make sure you're keeping account of this stuff too. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that I appreciate when I listen to you and when I read some of your work is that I actually feel like I'm getting an honest assessment of the of the facts on both sides rather than, you know, just someone spiking the football, which is like 90% of uh, opinion writing out there. And yeah, I also appreciate that you did an, uh, an episode uh, on a mathematical topic on, on Gödel's incompleteness theorem, which I find it so hard to do. I try every few months to do a mathematical show and I'm going to continue to do it, but it's very mm. hard to do it in the audio format. And I appreciate anyone who, uh, who, uh, who gives that a shot as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I appreciate that. It's funny because that was one where I was post, but, you know, so I started my podcast and I was worried, you know, you start a new podcast and you're concerned, like, are people going to listen to two episodes and say, oh, this is terrible and it's going to be a public embarrassment. Um, and so, yeah, in the beginning, I was just playing it safe and doing the obvious stuff like interviewing Tom Woods and other libertarian free market people that everyone would be expecting. But yeah, at some point, I said, you know what, this is my podcast and I really want to explain to people Girdle's Theorem and because it's really cool and I think I know a way to explain it that, you know, people can get it. And so, and that, and there was a really good reaction to that. A lot of people were, you know, people who were mathematically trained saying, Hey, you did a pretty good job there. That's, you know, that was pretty, pretty accurate. And other people just, Oh yeah, I never understood that. Cause, yeah. Cause that was the thing on that one is I had read, you know, obviously it's very famous and in, you know, like philosophy of mind and computer science and so people throw that result around a lot. And yet he, the secondhand accounts would often, in my mind, they were like internally contradictory or not internally, but contradictory across different accounts. 
And so, you know, and, and, and then so finally, though, was I think I was in grad school and I was in the library at NYU and I found this great math book that really like walked through the actual proof and showed how it worked. And then when I finally, you know, saw it, I was like, oh, okay, this is great. Yeah. Would that be the, uh, the Bopes library at NYU? That, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, uh, I spent quite a bit of time in there as well. Uh, probably no. I was in grad school there in like, let's see, 2009 to 2011. But in the you know computer science department, I don't know when you were there, but uh, probably I was there from ninety eight to 03. Okay, okay. So if, you, if years before, about a decade before, I I, I found a lot. Surprisingly, uh, I found a lot of really great books in that library that maybe weren't taught in the courses, but but uh, that I got a lot out of just from uh, just from perusing that library. So um, yeah, that's uh, I'm sure that's true of most college libraries, but. Uh, uh, a lot of a lot of nooks and crannies in that one. All right, so let's uh, let's get into the main topic. The economist Ludwig von Mises wrote about probability in his text *Human Action*, and this came out in the 1940s. I believe it was 49. Mm-hmm. And so you wrote the definitive study guide to that. I think it's fair to say. Uh, so let's start here. Why was Mises so interested in probability? at this time? And what was he trying to bring to the economics profession that hadn't been there previously? Well, so to understand, first of all, just for your listeners, it's an odd title. Like, why is it called human action? So let me just take a moment on that. So this is a treatise on economics. You know, Mises was, you know, an economist, I would argue, the greatest economist of the 20th century. And so the way he viewed the, how can I put this? So as people, as you know, social scientists began noting the patterns in market phenomena, you know, over the centuries, and then you know, developing what we would now look back and say, ah, yes, the early stages of economics. Mises realized that that eventually what happened is they they narrowed it down to say, look, this isn't this isn't biology, it's not chemistry, it's not physics, it's not math, it's not history. What is this? And what it was was he thought the the rigorous logical study of purposive behavior, right? So when people use means to achieve an end. And so, and he he summarized that by saying human action, right? And so that's why that's the the title of his treatise. And so he's saying what he called praxeology was the the logical science of action. And then a, a, a specific subset of that, when you assume that there's private property in the use of money, is what he called catalactics. Okay, so, so how is the, okay. is how is economics usually defined? Um, and I, I hate to use the term like usually, but in the I don't know if you go to an economic econ one hundred and one course in in a college, they they, they usually don't just define it as the the study of you know human action. They they usually say something else, right? Yeah. Well, for one thing. A lot of times they don't bother to define it. You know what I mean? To them, that's like, oh, we're not doing philosophy here. You know, let's roll up our sleeves and you know, and get into the economics. Come on, we yeah. all we all know what we're doing. We're studying how the economy works, and we want to you know reduce unemployment. That kind of, you know, we want to help poor people. Um, so th- I think there's that element. When I was writing my book, Choice, which was uh, not like literally a study guide, but more of a a distillation of the the main points of human actions. So cho- you know, Choice is like a 350 so page book. Whereas human actions, I think 900 plus, something like that. That's right in the opening chapter as I was trying to explain it. And I went and surveyed a bunch of economic, te- either textbooks or like books for the lay person written by economists, kind of, you know, introduction to how economists think. And yeah, some of them, I mean, like the, like graduate level texts, it was funny, like the stuff that I used at NYU when I was a grad student. I mean, they 
they just jump right into, okay, here's the production function of the economy. And there's F, you know, with, with K and L as the inputs and they just jump right into it. They don't bother explaining, here's what we're doing in this course of study. Whereas the more introductory, lower level ones, they'll, they'll often say stuff like economics is the study of how society uses scarce resources to achieve competing ends or something like that, or, okay. or the, the determination of which goods should be produced and how they should be allocated. You know, sometimes you'll see language like that. The ones that I think are, are better and closer to the Misesian approach will say something like economics is the study of rational choice or something like that. Okay, so that's similar, I guess. But I, I, yeah, I, I could see the connection there, though. Uh, definitely, like, hey, we're making all this stuff. We're accumulating stuff, using stuff, doing stuff. I mean, it's really, it's all, it all boils down to action and choices, and how that works on an individual level, and what the, how that works on a, on a group level. Right, and so, yeah, I mean, there the difference. So, and that's why, too, in case your listeners have noticed this. It leads to what's called economic imperialism, by which they mean economists, instead of staying in their lane and just talking about inflation and the business cycle and economic growth, will then start talking about the, the dating market. You know, just even that phrase, the dating market, you know, like that's an economic type of, of use or, you know, just going into other disciplines like sociology or criminology, like the economic analysis of crime. And, and you might, you know, there's famous analyses like, oh, well, you know, criminals get a certain amount of utility and by with police enforcement and there's a probability of being arrested and put in prison and, da, 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 da. and so what's the optimal punishment sure. for crime and you know that or law and economics so yeah there's a lot of things where tools and techniques that were originally developed to explain a consumer with a limited budget seeing an array of prices and having preferences and figuring out how do I spend my money to maximize utility in the marketplace like that framework what if instead I want to, you know, analyze a politician trying to decide what should my platform be to maximize my votes in the next election? And that's what's called public choice theory. Right, right. right. So, or, or, you know, the economic analysis of crime doesn't assume criminals are crazy nut jobs just going around murdering people and robbing banks because, you know, they have these impulses and they can't control. No, it's a very rational, well, the criminal engages in a cost-benefit analysis and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, but... Whether or not one endorses, and some of those things give me the creeps, to be honest with you, some of those, especially like people looking at the so-called dating market as economists, that, that just gives me the creeps. But in any event, where that comes from is this idea that really what economists, you know, the, the, the techniques economists use to explain consumer behavior or to explain the owner of a firm and how he makes decisions based on, you know, the technology he has at his disposal and the input and output prices that those techniques are applicable beyond just the narrow sphere of what we commonly consider economic decisions, you know? And, and so that, that's, that's the, and that's why Mises thought the, the proper scope for what he was doing was not just a book on economics. Like he didn't just call his book, the, the economy or something. He called right. it human action. Cause he realized that's actually the, the foundation. And then once he lays the foundation, now he's going to home in on, you know, specific assumptions about, purpose of behavior in the context of a society with private property and the use of money. And that's what we mean by, you know, a market economy. Yeah. So he, he, did, he tackles the idea of probability pretty early on in the book. It was like 
is chapter six. Mm-hmm. Your study guide uh, corresponds to the chapters in the in the book, right? I'm sorry, I didn't uh, read. I didn't read Human Action. I only read parts of your study guide. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that's. I'm pretty sure that's correct. Yeah. And yeah, so it's page 107 is where he starts in the Scholars Edition. But since, like I say, the Human Action is a really big book, that that's still relatively early, even though some people might say, "Geez, he doesn't get around to it until page 107." Okay, yeah. So, so what was his interest in this? And I okay, should also yeah. point out, like, <laughs> I, I just, should also yeah. point out, his, his brother was a, a mm-hmm. professor in um, in probability theory in Harvard. So, yep. man, yeah, uh, this is impressive. I just realized you, I almost went fourteen minutes without answering your the question you asked. <laughs> that's right. We got into uh, some interesting stuff. <laughs> um, so, so the, where I meant to go with this originally, when I was giving you that long winded answer, was to say that you know, the, apparently Murray Rothbard, who's a big fan of Mises, when he uh, he tells the story that when he heard Mises was coming out with a new book, you know, namely Human Action, and Rothbard said, "What's it about?" and the person said, "Everything." Right. So, <laughs> the, the, you know, this this book really does. I mean, Mises gets into all kinds of stuff, including oh, how it was that Rome fell because of the price controls. You know, that's really you know that kind of stuff. You know, what I mean, so he really just speaks about all kinds of stuff in this book. So, yeah, as you say, Mises' brother Richard you know, is an accomplished, you know, published mathematician and, and did work on this. And so here, let me be transparent with you. I'm not an expert on like Richard von Mises' thought and exactly how, you know, his views differ from Mises. But I, I have heard people, you know, giving lectures on this topic say that, yeah, even though Mises, you know, didn't come right out and, and say my brother's wrong on this, that, you know, that's, that's partly who he was rebelling against here. Oh, interesting. Um, I thought he was, see, I always thought he was like using his brother's work. Now you're saying that he's kind of saying he's, it's kind of a little sibling rivalry going on there. I mean, I'm not trying to be evasive, but I think it's actually kind of really nuanced. Like Mises borrowed some of it. Like Mises certainly benefited from having read his brother's work, but he actually, he disagreed on some points. But again, I I shouldn't, I don't want to say, because Richard said this and then Ludwig said that, like, I don't know them well enough, but I do know. Yeah, I don't either. I'm just, yeah. 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 (laughs) Mises was aware of his brother's work and that certainly influenced it. But I have definitely heard, you know, experts on this say that Mises did differ from his brother on on some of these points. But in any event, so it's, as you would say, like, well, gee, why is this stuff on probability in here? Just because Mises, I mean, he's given like the whole philosophical underpinning of how do we, you know, like, what's the logical status of economics, you know, what's the epistemological foundation of economics per se? And partly he's doing that because nowadays some of it might seem quaint and like, what, what are you wasting all your time doing is just, you know, tell me how the business cycle functions or operates. What's going on here? It's partly because Mises is coming out of a tradition where there was like logical positivism. And then also there were Marxists who would say things like, oh yeah, there's, you know, there, there's bourgeois economics, but that, you know, rests on faulty axioms. And if you have the proper understanding of things, you'll see that the the theorems of David Ricardo and such are nonsense. And so Mises had to really, you know, first of all, just establish the philosophical underpinnings of what he was doing, because otherwise somebody could just appeal to polylogism and say, oh, well, there's multiple logics. And yeah, yeah, your theories, you you economists are, are true in your logic, but not according to our superior, you know what I mean? So that's partly why Mises has to go through all this stuff that might look to an outsider like it's philosophy and not economics. And so it's not surprising that in that context, part of what he talks about is the nature of probability. Because, and, and so, you know, part of what he's doing here is he's trying to establish and through his discussion, he typically couches it in terms of the, the business person. And, you know, and so like what types of probability or, or you know, these, these classifications that, you know, I guess you and I are going to talk about here in a minute, 
Max, that, you know, if, if a business person knows that a certain percentage of his produce will rot in the warehouse, you know, what, 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 how does that affect his behavior and, and so forth? Like, is that gambling and, you know, stuff like that? And what, what does it mean when you take out insurance, stuff like that? So that's, right. that's part of the connection and why he goes through the trouble of laying this stuff out is because it does overlap and have implications for how an economist is going to deal with stereotypically economic issues. Yeah, I find that most of the difficult decisions in business and life are not like, oh, I'm going to invest this amount and then this is going to be my rate of return. It's it's no, like I'm going to do this thing and then that changes the probabilities of what might happen, but uh, <laughs> I, I still don't I st- I still don't know what my risk reward and now uh um trade-off should be and um I'm taking this I'm making this decision because I think hey, it's probably going to put me in a better position where a better outcome is more likely. Um, mm-hmm. And so, Another thing that I should probably yeah. mention that just occurred to me, another reason for all of this and, and the detail he goes into on this stuff is that originally economic theory, certainly in the 1800s and early 1900s, was developed primarily in the context of certainty you know, so in other words, the extent that you would try to mathematically model something or not even mathematically, but like formally model something, you know, an economy, have like a little simple toy economy. Right. With, oh, there's, you know, there's a wheat sector and there's a, you know, or let's say a corn sector and then there's uh, traded goods and blah, 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 it, it, those sorts of things. Usually everything was pinned down in, in definite, you know, deterministic in the model and that's right. how you get certain results. Like, you well, know, show the, yeah, the, the the farmer knows that if they they plant crop A instead of crop B, they know they'll make more money. So obviously, mm-hmm. they'll go to crop A. Yeah, or just to show the benefits of inter, of you know free trade internationally right. and things like that with so called comparative advantage. Those demonstrations are all using you know they're deterministic. There's no uncertainty. So lots of the standard results in economic science or, or theory were done in a, in a context of certainty. And, but then in the 20th century, at some point, certainly the forties and the fifties, economists started taking more seriously the issues of uncertainty and how do we deal with that? And often what would happen, particularly among those economists who were more mathematically fluent and who liked to express their economic theories in the language of, of formal math. And Mises wasn't one of them, by the way, that he had a lot of problems with that enterprise, but what they would often do is just, it was basically the same kind of framework. It's just, they would introduce random variables. And so, yeah, the agent, instead of knowing exactly what the market price was going to be next year and then optimizing to maximize his utility function, instead would say, okay, well, there's going to be a distribution of possible prices, but I know what, you know, the mean and, and standard deviation and higher moments, blah, 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 the distribution are. And so then I'll optimize the X, you know, the expectation of my, you know, not redefined utility function that takes into account uncertainty that, you know, that kind of stuff. So what's so wrong I, with that? Yeah. So, well, I mean, there's lots of things we could get into, but I think this isn't just Mises, but the, but the general Austrian concern with that is you just kind of push the problem back one step. So it's like, yeah, you're admitting people aren't omniscient, but you do assume that they perfectly know the structure of the world. And, you know, so yeah, they know exactly every outcome that might happen and they have the correct probabilities to assign to it. So it's still like an equilibrium framework. There's no genuine surprise or learning going on in those models. It's ah, just, I see. So, so in other words, it's not really grappling with the problem of in the real world, people aren't like the things in the, you know, these people in the models that know what's going on with certainty. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So 
I talk a lot about this sh- on this show about uh, the objective view of probability or the frequentist view and subjective probability, which is sort of the, a degree of belief and mm-hmm. how likely I think a certain event is going to happen. And I sort of deal day to day in subjective probability, which is why I kind of feel the need to contend with what uh, Mises had to say about it. Um, but would you say this corresponds to what Mises called uh, class probability and case probability? It's it's similar. So let me I'll just briefly lay it out. Like I, if I were just teaching this to a you know an undergrad class or yeah. so, probably even in a graduate level class because this gets pretty deep. Go for but, it. But and then yeah, so it, there is it's similar. But I, I don't think he's he's like making the distinction along the same fault line as it were. So yeah, when Mises discusses this, he's got class probability versus what he calls case probability. And for class probability, he says you know there's some events where or you know, there's there's a whole class of phenomena and we think we know certain facts about the whole class. So for example, for a certain city over the period of a year, we're pretty sure we know how many people are going to die, you know, of there. We just don't know which one. So all we can say about any individual person in the city is they are a member of this broader class. And we think we have some knowledge about the behavior of the class as a whole. So would, would he also apply that to like a dice roll where it's like, you know, hey, I know it's like, you know, one-sixth for each side. Uh, I just don't know how much any particular roll of the dice, we can't predict what it's going to be. But we do know the overall structure of, you know, or any casino game for that matter. Yeah, I think he, I think he would say that, yes. And then he said, in contrast, and so the way you remember that, of course, is class probability. I mean, we know information about the whole class. And then case gotcha. probability is more like about... A, a unique historical case. And he's saying here, you know, you can have subjective estimates as to, you know, what's going to happen, but really this is a non-repeatable, unique historical event. And so the classic example he uses on this one is a presidential election. And yeah. so here he, sa- he says, so, you know, with, with the class probability, just to back up. So again, you know, a life insurance company can say, oh, there's a million people and we think such and such are probably going to die. And so if we want to charge the actuarially fair premium plus maybe a little margin for our, you know, overhead and whatever, this is the number we'd have to charge. And as long as we sell enough such policies, then we're not gambling. We're just, you know, we're covered. Whereas he's saying if he only sold a few policies, then they would be gambling. Um, and, and so that's the way he handles that. Whereas he's saying somebody, you know, looking at a presidential election who perhaps wants to wager on it and or somebody who says, oh, I think there's a 60% chance that, Roosevelt is going to get reelected. Mises is saying that's really just a metaphor. There's there's no real scientific precision. There's no real meaning to that statement because it's, you know, like what what exactly do you mean by that that oh, if we held this presidential election 100 times in a row, then 60 of you know what I mean like it's what what does that even mean to say there's a 60% chance Roosevelt's going to be reelected? And you can translate it into statements about well, how much you know? I would be willing to pay, put up this many dollars to win a hundred if Rose, you know that kind of stuff. Right, but even there, that mixes in your 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 uh, you know your risk preferences or your your love of gambling per se. And so, even two people who had the same you know estimates about what was going to happen probabilistically might give different reports as to you know what their trade off would be in terms of how much would you have to put up or would you be willing to put up to win a hundred dollars. So that that's kind of where he gets into. So there, he's recoiling against the attempts to use mathematical language in there, where he thinks 
is giving this this sense of precision where really it's not warranted. So yes, like you say, Max, it totally makes sense to say, oh, there's a one in six chance that if I roll this thing that I assume is a fair die, a three will come up. But to say there's only a one in six chance that Tulsi Gabbard's going to win the Democratic nomination, that doesn't really mean anything. So I have I have a little problem with that because, well, hmm, let me see how I'm going to put this. Like, it's meaningful for me if I put a number on something. Uh, let's say I want to I, I wanna fly, I, I want to take a flight. I want to fly to the West Coast. And I know there's like a one in billion chance the flight will... Uh, crash, then um, I'll, I'll take my chances. I'll I'll fly to the West Coast. But if I thought maybe there was like a one in ten that the flight was going to crash, this is like a one-off type thing. Then mm-hmm. I, I no way no way I would take that flight. <laughs> so um, right. there there's sort of I feel like the number that someone comes up with subjectively is still important, and so I don't know how like. When, when he says it has no meaning, I don't know. I, 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 you see how I'm having trouble putting those two together? Like, it's, I, you make decisions off of it. It's certainly um, rational to make decisions off of your subjective opinion as to whether a one-off event is going to happen or not. We do it all the time. Um, and yet, the number has no meaning. How could those two things both be true? L- let me just try restating it, and then maybe we can grapple more with what the yeah. the difficulty is. So, and by the way, I, I think I understand what you what you're getting at. So I'm not I'm not saying I, I don't that I fail to see your uh your concern, but let me just try it this way. Sure. So again, like to say you roll a die and the you know to say, oh I think the chance of a three coming up is one in six, what does that actually mean? Mises would say, oh what it means is the set of all possible outcomes is you know the one, two, three, four, five, six. We don't know anything about the individual outcomes except that they're a member of that class. We know that one of the numbers has to come up. And so that's what we mean when we say there's a one in six chance that any particular number is going to come up. And he even goes so far as to say that when people, you know, like in textbooks order, when they define that and they throw in the assumption, assume each outcome is equal probable, right. he even quibbles with that and says, no, that's redundant or, or that per se doesn't make any sense. Or, or right. not that it doesn't make sense, but he says it's it's circular argument. He's saying, in other words, there, when you're trying to define what do you mean by to say the probability of this event happening is a one in six, to start your definition of probability by saying, assume every outcome has an equal probable outcome, you know, you, you get you know what I'm saying? Or Mises is saying, wait a minute, you're right. using the notion of probability to define probability. That's a circular argument. Right. So that's, you know, that that's, I don't know if that helps a little bit to see what, where he's coming from when he's talking about what does that mean. Right, so you can't so like, use probability to define probability, or you can't use yes, likelihood yeah. so or chances you, or any mm-hmm. other word. It's, I mean, it, it, you almost have to start somewhere. It's so, it's almost like, hey, you have two possible outcomes or, or multiple possible outcomes, and you're almost trying to find the, yes, the relative likelihood, but I just use likelihood to define mm-hmm. it. So, um, like, for, as far as the plane thing, yeah, I mean, he, Mises would certainly, like if you said, you know what, I would that uh, taking the plane from here to L.A. is is safer than driving a car, and someone said, "What do you mean?" And you, and you say, "Oh, well, because I uh, considering the whole class of airplane flights, especially if we like measure it by passenger mile traveled or something, and, the, and then the number of deaths, and all I really know is that you know my flight is going to be one member of that whole class. There, that's the meaningful sense in which I can say the probability of me dying in the plane crash." for this given trip of a given distance is less than if I drove in a car. 
and and that's that's certainly true, and that's fine. So Mises wouldn't have a problem with with that sort of statement. But but again, things that are when you start getting more specific about it, like geez, I wouldn't go on a date with that guy with that tattoo and whatever. He just gives me the willies. You know, I I bet you there's there's a anywhere anywhere from a seventy to eighty percent chance that, that guy's going to attack me. Strictly speaking, Mises, that what does that mean? You're you're making those numbers up. Like you can't translate that. Whereas with the, with the die roll, I can tell you exactly how I'm coming up with that number and what that really quote means. Whereas to say, oh gee, I think there's anywhere from a you know around a seventy to eighty percent chance that guy's going to attack me if I hang out with him for the next two hours. I think Mises would say, strictly speaking, that's metaphorical. Like what, that doesn't even mean anything. There's no way you can translate that into something else. Right. Because again, if you try to you know you try to do it mechanically, you might say, oh well, what I mean is over a million repeated trials. My best, you know what I mean, and and it's like, well, well right. you're not That's gonna. What does that even mean? Yeah, it's <laughs> so. it's. Uh, uh, this is something that I'm gonna have to. Uh, I'm gonna have to talk about through multiple shows because there's a lot that <laughs> there's a lot to wrap wrap my head around on this one. Um, but I do feel like you know, subjective probability is maybe it's meaningful in that's what a person is basing their decisions off of. You know whether. And by the way, coming up with the subjective probabilities, coming up with those rankings of how likely something is, there's more competent ways to do it. There's less competent ways to do it. You know, someone could just be making up the numbers and then someone could be using Bayes' theorem and doing a very good job at coming up with the numbers, right? So mm-hmm. couldn't, I mean, there definitely has to be a, a way of saying, hey, the, um, the relative likelihood, whether I'm saying, you know, hey, there's an 87.2% chance that so-and-so is going to win the election. I mean, that's kind of, you know, that's very, that's that's almost too specific. Or whether you just say, whether you just break it out into very good chance, good chance, whether you kind of give a qualitative value. Um, I feel like you're, a predictor can be kind of calibrated over time to sort of make sure that you're giving you know, some people are much better at giving subjective probabilities than others. And you can almost say that objectively because then you kind of aggregate all of them together. <laughs> but but uh, uh, it's, um, I don't know if you have any comments on that, on, on where I'm trying to go here. <laughs> if you could help me out. Yeah, let me, um, so again, I mean, this whole, I'm just, I have it in front of me here. I'm just skimming it to see. So yeah, to be clear, I mean, Mises is not denying, you know, when the future is open-ended and uncertain that, you know, people have different expectations, if you want to use that word, and right. that influences their current decisions. Right, right. And that, you know, if something seems riskier or or more dangerous, they might avoid it and whatever. But so what he's grappling, though, with is he's trying to explain that in, in a logically satisfactory way. And I think the only thing he's resisting is the understandable temptation to use the language, you know, the mathematical language of probability that does make sense when it comes to what he calls class probability and then to apply it in his mind inappropriately to case probability. So again, it's, I see. that's really what he, you know what I mean? So in other words, he's just trying to say, yeah, in the real world and we as economists have to grapple with the fact that the future's open-ended and uncertain and people, when they act, need to grapple with that. But let's not just impose this framework that really doesn't make sense in that setting and only really makes sense in a very specialized set of circumstances. Okay, so what would be a good example of someone saying, like using um, rules from class probability uh, in the wrong way, or in the way I would put it, like they use a, a frequentist objective probability, and then they apply it in the subjective case, and they do it 
you know, and, and, and it's, it's not appropriate. Let's well, I, I, I'm here. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to give you an yeah. exact, because again, he's like, he spends pages on this stuff and it's, so I, I guess, like I say, it's somebody who let's, let's try it like this. So it's, it's difficult. If you see somebody, you know, one person betting that a, a certain candidate's going to win and someone else not betting that that candidate's going to win. Sure. It might, you might be tempted to say, oh, that first guy assigns a higher subjective probability to that person winning than the other guy did. Right. But strictly speaking, you can't conclude that. It could well, be the first guy just enjoys gambling more. Yes, yes, that's, that's You know what true. I mean? So there's, there's things like that where, again, it's- Or the risk aversion, different, different risk aversion. I, right, right. I predict it. I lost five bucks because I put five bucks on Biden winning New Hampshire because I saw that if I won, I would get 250. If he won, I'd get $250. So I thought, why not take the chance? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and, and so, and so, yeah, you, you can't, you couldn't just observe people's actions and then back out, you know, and what their internal subjective probabilities must actually be. Yeah. Because again, there's always, um, another element involved and it's, you know, this is a little bit loose, but like the measuring rod you think you're using is itself, you know, changeable or malleable. So that's, so I guess that's one way of, of getting at the issue. And so I, I again, I, I don't, <laughs> it's, it's more, it's not that Mises has this alternative framework to give you that's, you know, just as precise as assuming, you know, like using the Bayes approach, It'd be his whole point, though, is you know that's a false sense of precision. Okay, if you get what I'm saying. So that I, you know what I mean. Like I, I think I get what you're saying. Like, oh, okay, so he's saying this is real. well. What does he do? And it's more like he's just trying to clarify and say, beware of just taking over this apparatus that, strictly speaking, really only makes sense in a narrow field of activity, and then applying it over here where it really doesn't make sense. Okay, I, just, I, just I think I understand. I, I, I think I understand it. Um, although. I would. I probably don't understand it enough to explain it on my own, and so that's one of the things that I'm going to probably struggle with for uh, several shows <laughs> going forward. Uh, but uh, but I'll, but I do think I do think I'm starting to get it. Uh, there, there's a lot of stuff in terms of like you know Bayesian inference, the idea that we start with a belief distribution over several different hypotheses, and then we mm. use this data to update those beliefs. Um, something I use all the time to solve real problems, I have to say, wasn't a popular view of statistical inference in the 1940s. Um, but I, I'm, I wonder what he would say about some of the applications that have come up, you know, since he wrote the book. You know, uh, some of the things that I've read about, for example, are insurance companies in the 50s and 60s started saying, you know, we actually can insure one-off events or events that uh, against uh, against events that have never occurred before. We as a company can competently come up with a a probability that that event will occur. And so, and then of course, you know, the last last 10, 20, 30 years uh, applied to machine learning and all of these uh, applications that we we have mm-hmm. uh, online, um, whether it's image recognition, audio recognition, or uh, sentiment analysis, or all, all that stuff is solved on, uh, you know, on a kind of Bayesian engine. So uh, I spam detection, one of the earliest ones on, on, on email, probably written in the, in the 80s, uh, would be a very good example. So uh, obviously, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's, it would be hard for Mises to talk about that in 1949. And I, I always need to put like a, 
uh, a caveat when we speculate what someone would have said. You know, you don't know what someone would have said. But uh, do you have any thoughts on like how he would have um, reacted to some of those developments? Okay, sure. Great question. So I, I don't remember him ever talking about what we would think of as like you know a Bayesian approach to uncertainty. Um, I asked David Gordon too, who's an expert on Mises' thought, and he said he couldn't recall Mises ever talking about that. And like you say, like in terms of its use among economists, at least, yeah, it wasn't really my understanding is it wasn't until like the fifties, at least where that really took off. And so you, it wouldn't have, you know, he wouldn't have had a chance. My guess though, is that, that Mises would have been very skeptical of it. So the, the stuff that we can say, I'll give you an example. So as he's uh, discussing these issues in human action, you know, he would say, okay, let's say there's people running a lottery and, you know, they, they sell a certain number of tickets and, as, as long as, you know, what the, the proceeds they're paying are just, you know, the sum of the, the revenue from the ticket sale, the people running the lottery are not gambling. Right. And he said, however, if they didn't sell some of the tickets, he's saying then they are with respect to those tickets, just like the gamblers are, you know, the people who are buying the tickets. So in other words, it's almost like they themselves are buying those tickets. You know, if you, so if you think through that, you know, it works out, the math works out like, oh yeah, like, you know, if, if the, the, the pot's a thousand dollars, like the, you know, the winner, whoever gets the winning ticket is going to get a thousand dollar cash prize and you're selling a thousand tickets for a dollar a piece, but they only sell 850 of them. Well, you know, then it's, it's as if the, the people running the thing themselves bought 150 tickets because, right. you know, there's a, if, if, if the winning tickets, one of theirs, then they obviously make a bunch of money. But if they, you know, if somebody, one of those 850 people get it, then they're out $150 which is exactly the position of somebody who bought 150 tickets. So, you know, th there's that sort of element. And, and then he, you know, generalizes to say like with life insurance companies or, you know, property and casualty insurance or whatever, that if, if you sell enough that you've, you know, that there's a sense in which you're covering the whole class. And even there he's, he's admitting in practice, none of this stuff is actually exact for one thing, just because you know how many people died in a certain city over the last, you know, for each of the last 50 years, that actually doesn't tell you how many people are going to die this next year. You oh, know, yeah, of course. There could be an earthquake. There could be an asteroid. You know what I mean? So even there, nothing is actually really the class. But he's just saying we assume we know all the relevant facts for the class as a whole. I mean, the way cases. I say it, to, to translate to my language, I say, like, all probability is subjective. It's just some of it mm -hmm. is you feel like you have so much information you could treat it as, as mm -hmm. uh, solid. Yeah. So, so even there, even with all the caveats he says, so if, as long as they, you know, issue enough policies that they reasonably are covered, then that's not gambling. But he said, if they only sold a few policies, then that would be, that, that wouldn't be insurance. That would be, or they wouldn't be just running a regular business. They would be gambling. Just like with the casino, you know, you need a lot of people to be playing for it to just be a business. If only a few people come in, then the casino's gambling too. Right. You know what I mean? It's, they have better odds, but they're still gambling. They're, you know, they're playing a game where the, the advantage is in their favor, but still you know, like the real, the only reason you can quote be safe as the casino owner is if you have lots of people playing for, you know, hours at a time. So I think to, you know, circle back to what you were saying, Max, I'm, I'm guessing that, yeah, if Lloyd's of London or something is tech, you know, insuring Liberace's fingers or whatever, you know, I've heard cases right, right. things like that that Mises would probably just say that was an informed, you know, speculative investment or something. You know, in other words, they, he's not saying it's a foolish thing for them to do. They have experts and they make judgment calls. 
And you, you know, but I, I think, you know, he, he might say it's a wager. He might not call it gambling. And, and so the distinction there being like seasoned experts who go and bet money on horses, you know, they're placing a wager or they're betting. Mises reserves that term gambling, meaning when it's pure luck, you know, someone playing roulette or something, that's gambling. Right. Whereas somebody betting on a, on a heavyweight fight, that's, that's, um, betting or, or laying a wager, I think is the terminology he would right. use Right, I, I could see like a firm doing many one-offs where each one is completely uh, unique and they have like analysts look at each one, but maybe they're betting on hundreds or thousands of them. And so it's still hard to see, it's still hard to call that a class because each one is so unique, but... Um, right, so yeah, so I get, so I, I think Mises would say, you know, in other words, people say, oh, we're not just betting on the outcome of the presidential election, we have wagers on all the congressional races and blah, blah, blah. And we're, you know, we're also betting on all the football games. And, and so, you know, so it's, so yeah, from the perspective of the person who believes in subjective probability theory, they would say, as long as our estimates of the actual probabilities aren't too far off, the more of these cases that we throw in, it's like we have a whole class. And so, yeah, it's not gambling. You know, it's 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 a safe business move, especially if we only do it when we think you know the the prices in the market are different from what the subjective probabilities imply is the quote fair price. Um, but yeah, I, I think Mises would would recoil from that and just say no. Those are many back to back instances of you either gambling or wagering, depending on you know the nature of the specific thing. And so, yeah, you can't say oh the the thing that ties us all together is they're all events that have a, you know, one in 10 chance of happening since Mises thinks, no, for any given case, when you say there's a one in 10 chance of that happening, that's nonsense language. You don't render it sensible by putting it into a category of other such equal probable events, I think is how he would handle it. Yeah. Oh, I just, sorry for jumping around, but I just thought of a really good example for the, uh, the presidential election one, because I was at the, uh, the Soho forum, which I understand you're, you're coming and doing a debate there in a, a few months. Is that right? Yeah, I think I think it's April 20th. Okay, so I was there, I don't remember how, how long ago, it was a few months ago, and they were debating, it was, it was a very specific, like, oh, should the Libertarian Party nominate someone like uh, Gary Johnson or not? Should they nominate someone who's more, uh, let's say, like ideologically pure? And, mm -hmm. uh, and right, so, so on the um, no, we shouldn't side was Dave Smith, who you've had on your show, right? And the, oh, yeah. the head of the Libertarian Party was on, or the chairman was was on the, the yes side. And one of the arguments that he made, which lost him my, my vote, essentially, as the voter, was when he was like, oh, well, you know, Gary Johnson got this many uh, votes. And then look, in 1988, Ron Paul got, got fewer votes than that. So look, it didn't work. And that was, uh, you know... That was that was the argument that just made me groan, and then I was like, "Okay, mm -hmm. I'm not." Uh, <laughs> sometimes one bad argument for me kind of sours it. <laughs> right to say it, but that uh, that just did not work for me. Yeah, and it's it's interesting you said it. so. Mises also in this very discussion of case probability, then at the end of the section transitions into our historical understanding of events that have already occurred, and so he's saying, you know, when people argue about like you know. Why, you know, why did Napoleon win this campaign or why did this happen or how come the communists took over or whatever, that there's a sense, you know, when you're trying to assign importance to the different factors, 
you know, some people might be more expert and have better judgment than others, but ultimately, you know, you, it, it's hard to really say, and, and you certainly can't be precise about it or rigorous about it. No, nope. you know, just as it yeah. really doesn't make sense to say, you know, oh, there's a one in six chance that FDR is going to win. Likewise, to say, oh, you know, the, the fact that whatever Napoleon's troops had better equipment is, you know, responsible for 60% of his win. And you know what I mean? Like that. That'd be very really difficult. Like, what does to, that mean? You'll yeah. never get a definitive answer there is, is yeah. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not only, let me push. I, I believe it's not merely that Mises is saying, how could you ever know? I think he's going to say, strictly speaking, that's nonsense. Like history is what it was. And I, you know, I guess you could say, well, suppose there was an alternative universe where we tweaked one thing two days earlier. But then again, that's kind of, again, like saying, well, what we mean when we say there's a one in six chance of FDR is suppose we ran this election a million times in a row. And again, it's like, well, what does that even mean? You know, so. Yeah, yeah. So it's hard to tell what it means. And and yet, <laughs> I, I see your point. And yet, I'm going to say, well, I, you know, we all use uh, subjective judgments and probabilities to try to figure out what is going to happen in the future. Maybe, um, you know, maybe if I, you know, maybe if I stick to my exercising, hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll get healthier, I'll lose weight or whatever. And so we, we all kind of have these probabilistic, Hey, if I do this, there's going to be X, there's going to be Y outcomes. And if we sort of, I don't see how you could say, well, I can apply this to future things, but I can't apply this to things in the past and say, hey, if I did this thing 10 years ago, then by now something would have been different. And so if you can do that, then it seems like maybe you can apply it to that same line of reasoning to a historical event. But my only, my only caveat would be that it's just you're not going to be able to come up with a very precise estimate. In something like why did Napoleon's troops uh, do well here and not there, et cetera, et cetera? Like you can't come up with a very good. But I, I still think there are things you can say about the past. Like if I, if someone had done this, then that would have happened. Oh sure, and I don't think Mises. I mean, I, I know Mises right would agree with you. You know, what I mean, so he's he's definitely, I think was a was a decent historian in his own right. Um, so he's not ob objecting to that. And Mises has his opinion. You know, he's, he said things like, as I alluded to earlier, like in Mises' opinion, oh, the reason the Roman Empire fell, it wasn't because, you know, to just say, oh, because the barbarian invasions. And he said, well, the barbarians have been invading for a long time and they were always repelled right. before. Why did they succeed this? And Mises thought it was the price controls, hmm. that the people fled the cities and actually many of them in the outskirts were starving and they welcomed the con you know, so-called conquerors coming in because they were starving and you know, that kind of stuff. So there, yeah, he's making his own theoretical judgment or he says the reason the Soviets did so well against the, uh, you know, the Germans was because of Lend-Lease and whatever. And, and that, you know, without the capitalist engine of the West supplying them, they would have been overrun, you know, that kind of stuff. So again, that's a historical judgment he's rendering. Um, I think what, again, all, all his point is, is just trying to be rigorous and say, you know, warning his economists, primary colleagues, primarily don't just adopt this framework that does make sense in a very narrow area and just apply it over here where it really doesn't make sense. Maybe a real quick analogy just to try to illustrate this. So it's also common for economists to use what's called utility functions, you know, like, cause they have mathematical models where, Oh, the consumer has a utility function where you plug in, you know, the quantity sure. of apples and oranges, and maybe it's, you know, uh, concave and blah, blah, blah. And so, the, you know, given the budget constraint and the prices maximize utility and, 
And so then that leads you to believe there's such a thing as utils and it's a cardinal thing. And Austrians typically say, no, it isn't. And that does, that's not to deny that people in the real world make choices and that they get more utility from one thing than another. It's just saying it's not a cardinal entity. And the analogy I use to illustrate that or motivate that, which I think is intuitive to most people say, I can say who my best friend is and even like who my second best friend is. Like, so I can rank my friends according to how much friendship I have with them. But if I, you know, to say, oh, by how much percentage does my best friend have more friendship with me than my second best friend, <laughs> you know, that it's, it's not just that, oh, you can never really know that. It's like, no, that some people would say that's a meaningless question. That doesn't even make yeah. sense. That's not. So likewise, the fact that I can say, oh, gee, I wouldn't go swim with sharks especially if they had laser beams on their heads because that's too dangerous or risky. You know, that's not the same thing as saying, Oh, you know, I wouldn't wager a certain amount to roll a die and I only get paid off if a two comes up because I know the probability of that's only one in six. Like, even though those both involve me shying away from something because of the risk involved or the, or the danger or the potential downside, I think Mises is just saying, be careful, don't apply the language of mathematical probability to both of them when it really only makes sense in the one case. Right. Okay. So I think I have one more question on this, which actually I think now, uh, now that we've had this conversation, I could almost, I think I could answer on my own of what Mises or might have said or what, you know, or, or what this line of reading reasoning might have said, but maybe you can tell me if I'm right or not. So the question I have written here is, you know, what do you think he would have made of the modern use of Bayesian inference in successfully solving problems, say in the engineering world? That's the that's kind of the world I live in. And that's sort of, you know, I always present Bayesian inference as an amazing tool to solve problems. I never presented it on this program as you know, the the only way to get at truth, or even you mm -hmm. have to have other ways to get at truth before you even get to Bayes' theorem. So uh, that wouldn't even make sense. But it, but it is an incredible tool of sol for solving a lot of problems faced by, by businesses and by engineers. And my guess is, you know, even if some, so some of, some of the problems that I solve are actually class probabilities. They're just very complicated ones. But even if they're, they're case probabilities, he would have said, you know, have fun coming up with those numbers to, you know, uh, post a number to the likelihood of something happening in order to solve problems, say the likelihood that uh, someone will like a restaurant. That's a lot of what we do here at, at, at Foursquare. Um, but, you know, hey, there are a lot of caveats you come up with when you come up with these complicated models of, well, a good example that we do that, that I've done is trying to figure out whether ads are working and whether um, people are caused to go somewhere by the ad or whether they would have gone anyway. Um, you could try to answer those problems, and we do, and people are willing to pay for our for attempts to try to answer those problems, but there are always a lot of uh, caveats, and the more complicated the model gets, the more you have to worry and uh, sort of um, second guess maybe this is not... Um, this answer is not meaningful. I guess, I mean, the more variables that come into the equation, the more likely you are to be making a, a serious error, um, in my view. Maybe that's not, maybe that's getting away from his sort of, it doesn't make sense to say that this friend is a 20% better friend than that friend, but... Um, okay, yeah, let me, if, if, yeah, let me try to take a shot at that. Okay. So here, I'm, I'm not, I was going to be funny and say, there's a 90% chance Mises would agree with what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> so you see what I did there? Um 
So I, I am pretty sure that he would at least, this is be close to how he would handle it. But again, I can't remember him specifically dealing with this sort of thing. So I'm not sure. Right. But like when it comes to business cycle research, right? So he, you know, he did a lot of work on that and he laid out the theory of it. And I think he would say something like, you know, let's say there's there's people in the stock market, you know, uh, hedge funds or whatever, and maybe they do technical analysis, you know? So, oh, look, at there's a head and shoulders pattern. They're looking at stock prices and they come up and maybe, you know, they do very well with that analysis. And, you know, they they have a higher return on their, you know, customers' money and blah, 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 and, and, and so forth. They got it all, you know, growing money under management. And it seems like they're pretty successful. And you could see them arguing that, look at this, you know, these techniques, this model that we've built has outperformed all of our peers over the last 10 years. We've, you know, we've beaten the market 10 years in running. And so this is the sense that we were going to say, we you know, we understand what drives stock prices better than anybody else. And, and I think Mises would say, you know, that that's fine. And certainly people out there in the real world have to make decisions. You have to invent, you know, so somebody's got to own corporate shares of stock and they can be guided by all sorts of different paradigms. And if they're doing better than I, Ludwig von Mises would do, that proves they're better investors than I am. And, you know, they're more entrepreneurial and, and, and so forth. But it's just, I think he would say something like, they don't actually have the true model. It's it's not the case, really, that the, quote, true thing driving stock prices, whatever model they're using, that it's possible next year there's a panic and all the stock prices drop to zero or whatever, down, down to a penny, even though their model, you know what I mean? In other words, it's right. not literally the case that they can't lose money. They might go bankrupt ne- at any moment, in which case it's, oh, wow, their model was working great up until that break point. And, you know, because human action really is not reducible to just a few variables. So I think he would say something like that. And likewise, with the stuff you're doing, I don't, you know, I I don't think he would have a problem with it. I think he would just say what you're doing is market forecasting or something or consumer forecasting. That's not, um, you know, like in other words, uh, or not in other words, but for an example, a Halloween shop certainly they're virtually certain they're going to do a lot more business the week before Halloween than they're going to do the week of July 4th. Right. If what they sell is like Batman costumes and stuff. But is that really like a law of human action in the same way that, you know, the, with the charge on electron or something, you know what I mean? Like it's no, it's not the same sort of thing. It could be different. It's just, we doubt that it will be. And there's lots of things that in principle could change that would, would make that Halloween store not do a bunch of, you know, again, there could be a drought or something. There could be a flood, the week before Halloween and they can't, they don't sell anything. Yeah. That's possible. So I think he would, we would handle it in that sort of fashion that these, this use of Bayesian inference or whatever, these statistical models using AI and whatever, that's great. And to the extent that it's successful as judged by profitability means go ahead and use it, but just don't kid yourself that you're actually uncovering some deeper true theory of what drives human behavior. I, th- I think he would say something like that. Gotcha. From the economic perspective. Got- gotcha. Gotcha. Right. There's also, I mean, th- there's a there's a judgment call here. And again, I don't know if this is philosophical more than it's just judgment. But whereas, you know, if somebody's reading charts, I would say, hey, you know, there could be, you know, the economy goes through cycles and changes. If your chart's been good for the last five years, and you've been making money and you blew up the next year, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Whereas if I built a Bayesian model to detect images to see if there's a picture of Bob Murphy in it, and every time I showed it, uh, 
matrix of pixels and said, yep, that's a picture of Bob Murphy, and no, this one isn't. And it was like 99% true when it was your picture and 1% when it wasn't. I'm not worried that that's going to like stop working, you know, after a certain period of year. Well, I guess you could change your look. <laughs> but Well, uh, and, and even there, and I, 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 I know probably you know this is probably like a standard thing that you learn on day two of the stuff you're in, but just in case, you know, some of your listeners or if, if I rerun this on my show. But like my favorite thing with that is, I'm sure you've heard these, Max, the two examples of they were showing the, the AI, you know, pictures of men versus women and it thought it learned the difference. And then they showed it a picture of the Beatles and they thought they were women because they had long hair. Yeah, yeah, then, that happens all the time. And then another one with the, um, the the military satellites and they, you know, having the, um, they trained it on showing satellite photos and like of a, of a forest and in some pictures there were tanks like hidden underneath the trees and, and, and so they trained it and told it, like, you know, they first came you know, with the training sessions, identified, yep, these pictures all have hidden enemy units hiding in the trees. And then these ones don't. These are just clear forest. And the, the system learned. And then it went out with, you know, the new data, you know, out of sample tests. And it did horribly. And they realized, oh, shoot, the the day that we, you know, the where we took the photos with the tanks being hidden, it was a sunny day. And the day where there were no tanks, it was overcast. And so what the computer had learned was, oh, when it's sunny, you know, there's danger. And when it's overcast, it's fine. And that, of course, wasn't what they were trying to get it to learn. So even there with the, with the Bob Murphy, you're right. Like if, you know, suppose I get a tattoo or something and all of a sudden says, no, that's that's Tom Wood. Well, it wouldn't say it's Tom Woods. No, that's Dave <laughs> Smith. <laughs> because it's learned that, you know, to not have a tattoo is something that's intrinsic to what the definition of Bob Murphy is. Right, right. All so right. it, you you might it might do very well up until the point when it doesn't, and then you could say, "Huh, how did it?" You know, and and like a normal man in the street would say, "Oh, see, it lacks common sense." Yeah. Oh, although you could trick people too. It's just people and machines get tricked in very different ways. So, uh, yeah. Well, that, that's what I would say. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I should be clear. I'm not. You know, I was really into like we were talking about the girdle steers. I was all into the philosophy of mind stuff and you know Turing tests and so. I'm not even there saying that's my, I'm just saying that's what the obvious rejoinder to what you said would be. That's all I'm. Yeah. All right. I think, I, I think I can wrap this up for today. This is a very good discussion. This is, I feel like in terms of podcast topics, this is at level hard, very hard maybe <laughs> uh, in my experience, but why not go for it? Uh, I, I, I had a great time and I think that um, what did I, 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 there was one thing that I wanted to say to, close on this. Um, ah. I think you wanted to urge everyone to buy my book. <laughs> what did, what's your latest book? Or, or which, which book are you talking about? Are you talking about the, the study guide or, the, uh, or, or you have a, a new one? I'm trying to think of which one do I make the most royalty off of to tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, if, if somebody, and I'll joke it, so the study guide to human action, that's a free PDF they can get you know, from the Mises. You could just Google Robert Murphy study guide human action. You'll get that. My book choice is not free, but I, I would say that that's, if somebody who's interested in the work of Ludwig von Mises, my book choice is, is the one uh, to get. If you want to see something more fun, then Contra Krugman is probably the, the one for you where it's a collection of all my essays over the years, uh, pushing back against what I think are the very wrong columns of uh, the Keynesian Paul Krugman. Oh, that's so great. And like the second day of my undergrad economics course, and this is at Yale, they assigned a Krugman article. And that was when I knew. <laughs> that was when I knew. I was like, ah, I, I don't, well, I was like, I don't like this homework, I think was my first, uh, my first appointment. <laughs> my, my first. And then I, and then, then I, then I, I realized uh, 
who he was. Um, yeah, no, but I, I think what I was going to say is one of the interesting things about this discussion is that, you know, there's what Mises said 80 years ago or 70 years ago now. There's, um, you know, there's a lot of what you talk about in Austrian economics and the economics profession. And there's what I talk about to solve problems from an engineering perspective and sort of merging all of the, we all have different kind of terminology and language and sort of merging it and contending with it, uh, the, the differences is tough, but I think that the, um, the amount of learning we'll get uh, on the other side of this is, is going to be considerable. So I just want to close by saying that I know you wrote this study guide in 2008. You've written so many topics uh, more recently. A few of the ones I want to point out are you've written a lot about healthcare and the healthcare system. You've, you've written about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, climate. There was one article you had which was about a world without prisons, how we could have a world without prisons, which I really thought was an, an amazing idea. And so I will link to all of that. And of course, Contra Krugman, which is one of my all-time favorite podcasts, your solo podcast at bobmurphyshow.com. Uh, do you have any last thoughts in the discussion today? And is there anywhere else that uh, we can find you? On Twitter, I'm Bob Murphy Econ. Um, no, I, I just appreciate this discussion. And yeah, at first, when you told me what you want to talk about, I was thinking, wow, that's a really narrow topic. We'll be done in 12 minutes, but apparently <laughs> not. I didn't even get around to answering your first question. Minutes, so. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I'm definitely going to continue this uh, this discussion on the show. And um, yeah, uh, maybe we can uh, talk to each other uh, some at some point in the future. So thanks for coming on the show. There's Bob. a good chance. See what <laughs> I did there? Yeah. Are you willing to put a number on it? <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. Okay, thanks for having me, Max. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.